0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, you are listening to New Books in American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jackson Reinhardt, and today I'm joined by Michael Kazin, professor of history at Georgetown University and editor emeritus of Dissent, to talk about his new book, What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is the world's oldest mass political organization, but it has been. But what the party has stood for through the centuries, and how has it managed to succeed in elections and to govern, in what it took to win? The eminent historian Michael Kazin tells the story of the party's long-time commitment to promoting moral capitalism, a system that mixes entrepreneurial freedom with the welfare of workers. Yet the party that championed the rights of white working man also vigorously protected or furthered the causes of slavery, segregation, and Native American removal. With its evolution towards a more inclusive, egalitarian vision, the party won durable victories for Americans of all backgrounds, but it has also struggled to hold together a majority coalition and advance a persuasive agenda. Kazin traces the party's fortune through vivid character spe- sketches of its key thinkers and doers, from William Jennings Bryan to Eleanor Roosevelt to Barack Obama. Throughout, Kazin reveals the rich interplay of personality, belief, strategy, and policy that defines the life of the Democratic Party and outlines the core components of a political legacy that President Joe Biden and his co-partisans rely on today as they seek to revitalize the American political experiment. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Well, great to be here, Jackson. Thanks for asking me. Yes.
1: So tell me a little bit about your academic and political background and how that informed the writing and publication of this book.
0: Well, I'll start with the political background because it's longer than my academic background. Um, I read about this a little bit in the book. I grew up in a liberal Democratic Party family uh, where Franklin D. Roosevelt was the closest thing to a secular saint uh, that existed. And um, I... Uh, campaign for John Kennedy on the streets of my hometown in uh, New Jersey, suburb of New York City uh, in 1960, um, and heard him speak actually at uh, a big armory, um, big auditorium in an armory not too far from my my, my house in suburban New Jersey. And um, when I went to college in the mid-60s, uh, 1966, I began college. I, I thought uh, I'd be a young Democrat uh, and then an older Democrat, and uh, I had illusions of running for the U S Senate, actually. Um, that was my, my dream, so to speak, uh, at the time. But then the war in Vietnam heated up. Um, I was angry, uh, as hell at what the liberal democratic administration, Lyndon Johnson was doing in Vietnam and into China generally. And so I moved to the left and joined students for democratic society, the, the radical, uh, mostly white student group of the sixties. But, you know, when, when the, uh, when the war was about to end, um, and uh also the new left declined as a movement in the early 70s um i began to see think about what the possibilities were of of change in american politics and i thought for all its its crimes <laughs> and all its uh drawbacks democratic party in a two-party system was by far the better of the two parties and so i have considered myself to be a, a left-wing democrat a progressive democrat uh, with a capital d uh, ever since um and uh, my work um, has been, I think, informed by, by political questions I, I've always had in the present, actually. Every book I've written, I won't go through all of them, this is my seventh book, uh, but has been prompted by questions about uh, contemporary American politics that I didn't know a good answer to. And so I've, I've sought answers, at least the roots of some of those problems uh, in, in the past. Um, and that's something which sometimes historians are uh, taught not not to do uh, it's called presentism um, at times but uh, I try to do it with empathy for those in the past not to um, sort of curse people in the past. I don't think there's any point in that they' they they're all they're all dead uh, they're not going to change their minds now whatever I think of them so I want to explain what they did. Um, for example, uh, I wrote a biography of William James Bryan who also appears in this new book um, as an important figure in one one of the uh, chapters. And Brian, uh, as many people out there probably know, was uh, known and is still known uh, for many people primarily uh, for two things. One, giving the cross of gold speech at the 1896 Democratic Convention, uh, which helped win the nomination, the first of three nominations for president um, that he won, and also for the last public act of his life, which was defending the prosecution, being part of the prosecution in the Scopes trial, uh, arguing that. The state of Tennessee had every right to ban the teaching of evolutionary theory in public schools, uh, and I was interested to understand how someone who was uh, pretty left-wing on economic policy uh, was something someone you could who was sympathetic with many of the policies of the socialist parties in Europe at the time when when socialist parties were were very strong in places like Germany and uh, the Labour Party was rising in Great Britain uh, could be uh, a fundamentalist Christian, believing that every word of the Bible was was either written by or inspired by God and had to be understood literally. Um, and so uh, this is a time when when uh, the Republican Party, of course, was in power under George W. Bush, uh, and uh, he was a born-again Christian and uh, had a faith that was not exactly the same as as uh, brian's faith, but 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 close enough. And so I want to understand how, people who were evangelical Protestants uh, like George W Bush like uh, William James Bryan could have moved uh, to the right politically um, and an understood at a time when when that was not true um, so that's one example and and with this book uh, more explicitly um, I want to understand as the title has it you know how Democrats have won in the past uh, how they've lost uh, what kind of coalitions they've built and uh, and no one until now believe it or not this this is the first or one of the first analytical histories of the Democratic Party. It's unusual that a major institution like this in in American history, um, you could argue argue even world history, uh, has so little written about it as a whole. There's a lot of books on different sections of the party, party in different states, of course, lots of books on Democratic presidents um, and uh, important events in the history of the party, like uh, the 1896 Democratic Convention, for example. Uh, But but uh, uh, hardly any sort of analytical histories of the party explaining how the party did and why it did, why it was able to win, why it was able why it lost at different times, um, and the and the import of that history in American history more generally. So that's what I try to do in the book.
1: No, I, I think you're completely right. There are numerous books on the Republican Party as an institution. I think of Heather Cox for Heather Cox Richardson. To my knowledge, well, this that, is that's one
0: actually of, one of the few on that party, either. You know, that is uh, true.
1: But I've always felt maybe maybe it's just because of the conservative resurgence and legacy that I just feel that there's more yeah. Republican books as opposed to Democrat. Yeah,
0: but not, not as many on the whole party. The whole party's history. Um, that is true. That is true. You know, one, one of the things one of the things I, I struck by when I started doing this book is how how rarely, at least modern American historians write about institutions, um, mm. major institutions, governmental institutions, quasi governmental institutions like like major political parties. Um, I mean, I've, I've, I've said, you know, several times recently, uh, you know, I love to have a history of the justice department or the state department or the, you know, um, we have history of the Supreme court, uh, cause so many legal historians of course care about that, but, but, uh, history of these massive institutions, which are so important. Um, and there's no end of documents, of course, uh, that you can look at, um, uh, historians have not been interested in writing, writing about these institutions. They're interested in writing about movements and individuals, communities. Um, all this matters, of course, culture, but not these institutions, which, and we live in a society, many ways structured by institutions, um, from the federal government on down. So, you know, I think uh, in, in, a, in my modest way, I'd like to help encourage more studies of, of this kind.
1: Could this arise from a academic skepticism
0: of institutions? Oh, I think so. Not yeah. just academic, but uh, popular popular criticism as well. Also, it's difficult to tell a good story. I mean, how do you, how do you tell a good story about the Justice Department, which has been around since you know the Civil War, or the Agriculture Department, been around since uh, the late nineteenth century and so forth? I mean, th- these are you know massive, do- massive, m- m- massive tons and tons of documents, you know, um, paper and otherwise, and and historians like to tell stories. I mean, we. One of my favorite quotations about history, I, I quote it in the book, is by Jill Lepore, uh, who gave me a nice blurb as well. And, and, and Jill says, um, history is a way of making an argument by telling a story. I love that because, you know, if you don't make an argument, uh, then then you just have details. Um, but if you don't tell a story, then you're not really doing history. So, um, you know, you have to go from one point to somewhere else, you know. Um and uh, have characters and and uh, you know narrative uh, themes and so forth. So, so uh, it's it's hard to do that clearly with institutions. But I'd like to have, you know, even more narrow you know studies of, of institutions. Uh, and um, you know Heather Richardson's book, which I you know I like some parts of, don't like other parts of. Um, you know, is is a, an attempt to do something like like I did um, for the Republican Party.
1: So speaking of narratives, your narrative is presupposed in this uh, belief that the Democrats have embraced moral capitalism throughout their entire history. What is moral capitalism, and how has it shifted and changed throughout the history of the Democratic Party?
0: Yeah, this is a term, actually, I got from my friend Elizabeth Cohen's uh, very fine book called Making a New Deal, which was published uh, 30 years ago now, I think, but uh, but was a great history of, of how uh, working people of all races, actually, um, in Chicago Uh, went from being apathetic about politics to being or even Republicans in the case of black uh, workers in Chicago to be uh, the core of the Democratic Party in in Chicago and and in some ways in in the country as a whole. Um, And uh, what I mean by it, it's a a vague term, obviously, but what I mean by it is is on one hand, you know, most Americans, of course, accept the capitalist system. They they're enthusiastic about it or just say this is the system we have and they can't imagine a different system. But I think um, most Americans uh, throughout history have wanted it to be a fairer system, have wanted uh, to uh, whittle down the power of big business, to regulate it in, in some ways, um, sometimes do away with it altogether. But uh, certainly, uh, for small, for, for ordinary Americans to be able to start small businesses and not be crushed by the power of, of uh, large, big businesses, monopolies, as they often got called. At the same time, most Americans uh, more and more have worked for somebody else for a living uh, rather than work for themselves. And so in the 20th century, especially, um, have wanted wage earners to have uh, get a better deal, I think, uh, um, with wages and more job security and so forth. And Democrats, when they've been successful politically, um, I think, um, have usually <clears throat> supported one side or another of, of, of these beliefs. On the one hand, in the 19th century, moral capitalism meant opposing the power of big banks of Wall Street of uh, <clears throat> the big industrial corporations that were forming in the late 19th century like uh, uh, Carnegie Steel and um, uh, Ford Motor Company and, and others um, and um, <clears throat> but it was and, and so in that in an anti-monopoly phase of, of their of their uh, belief in and policies to promote more capitalism Democrats um, were leery about the power of the federal government uh, because they thought the federal government would always be in the grip of these big interests. Um, and uh, they pointed to the Senate, U.S. Senate, for example, which until the uh, 17th Amendment was was uh, appointed. Senators were appointed by state legislatures The state legislatures were easy uh, or m- many times were accused to be easy to of being bought off by uh, big corporate interests in their states. Uh, And so the U.S. Senate was sometimes called the the Chamber of Millionaires uh, when being a millionaire was being really, really rich. Now it's just being uh, somewhat rich. (laughs) Um, So, um, And that changed in the 1890s when William Jennings Bryan ran for president in the middle of a depression. um, And the establishment Democratic Party, led by Grover Cleveland, um, who was uh, president at the time, was blamed for being in government when the depression happened, being president when the election, when the depression uh, began, uh, but also for not doing anything to help ordinary people, working people who were, of course, many of them desperate for uh, uh, for relief. Uh, because Democrats at the time, uh, going back to Andrew Jackson, did not believe in creating jobs, uh, uh, did not believe in the government creating jobs, did not believe in in, uh, in regulating corporations in any major way, except for trying to get tariffs down, get uh, 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 taxes on imported goods down because they wanted to help small farmers be able to, especially be able to, and, and workers to be able to afford, you know, manufactured products uh, uh, at lower prices. Um, um, so but Ryan begins to connect the party with organized labor, uh, which is beginning to grow uh, in the 1890s the early 20th century. For the first time in 1908, the American Federation of Labor, the major labor federation, supports a Democrat for president, supports anybody for president, and that's William Jennings Bryan in 1908. And since then, the uh, Democrats have been, for the most part, a party which is, has gotten the support of most uh, labor unions. In um, 1930s, uh, that was really a major part of the, of the New Deal coalition that was forming this huge upsurge of, of labor uh, organizing, labor unions, labor unions, on the thirties, which became really a core constituency of the Democratic Party in the way they had not really been before, and then moral capitalism gets, uh, I think, redefined. Um, why would we? I, I think, it in effect, gets redefined by Democrats, uh, not so much as curbing the the size of big business, but of helping wage earners to get um, uh, higher wages, more job security, um, better working conditions. Um, um, protection against, against being injured on the job. Um, uh, and the power of big corporations, you know, big corporations sometimes can afford to pay workers more actually, uh, um, and give them more job security. So especially when unions are organized in this big corporation. So uh, the anti-monopoly side of the, of the Democrats, uh, moral capitalism never really goes away. Um, it hasn't gone away today. Elizabeth Warren is sort of famously out there talking about, uh, more vigorous antitrust prosecutions, uh, Democrats who often talk about trying to, of course, uh, you know, limit the power of Amazon, uh, uh, and Facebook and, excuse me, um, and some big retail giants, uh, like Walmart, but that's not, I think, um, kind of thing that really drives, uh, most people who are committed Democrats actually, um, uh, or, um, is not really been a major plank and was not a plank in major plank in Joe, Joe and Joe Biden's platform that he ran on, uh, in 2020 or his speeches. So, um, so I think you go from anti-monopoly being the core of moral capitalism in the 19th century to pro worker, uh, uh, being the core of moral capitalism in the 20th and, and 21st century. Now I'm not saying that always works. I'm not saying that always is, uh, emphasized the way it, uh, uh, perhaps should, should have been. Um, but I think if you're looking at the, uh, core theme of economic, um, uh, appeals to, uh, to Americans, uh, the Democratic Party has made, uh, those are usually there. And I should say one of the things about anti-monopoly, which made it, uh, possible to unite Democrats across regional lines, uh, at the time was that, um, uh, slavery was not uh, defined as a monopoly. Uh, white supremacy was not defined as a monopoly. So it was possible to unite uh, small business people, small farmers, some workers from the North and the West with uh, first slave owners and then um, and white Southerners generally. And then, and then uh, after the Civil War and Reconstruction with, 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 with racists in, in, in the South uh, who dominated the Democratic Party in the South. Um, because their enemy was uh, monopolies was big business in the north in the big industrial states um, uh, and and so this was a, a pretty much white only party really until the 1930s uh, and with a few rare exceptions. Um, and and so anti-monopoly was a, a useful way I think to unite those different groups because they they could agree that that the big, you know the robber barons of the of the Northeast and the and the Midwestern states were were a bad thing, but they didn't have to then get into the the fact that uh, this was um, a party for uh, for white whites only and for the most part white men only because of course women couldn't vote in uh, in most states until the early twentieth century.
1: You touch on this briefly too about how in the antebellum period, Democrats promoted moral capitalism defending slavery because they considered that northern wage earning entrepreneurship was a, a form of slavery it was a wage slavery that was in some sense worse than slavery itself because it, it didn't provide workers with homes and food it was this is the argument of people like Charles Fritzkew, cannibals all that even, even in this antebellum period moral capitalism was still a, a a pro-slavery ideology.
0: Yeah. I mean, it was only more capitalism for white people. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, And that was pretty explicit. And it was only a country for white people. You know, Stephen Douglas uh, made clear in his debates with, uh, with Lincoln uh, in 1858. Um, But I should say, I mean, that uh, was hard to sustain. I mean, Martin Van Buren, who I, who I think was in many ways, the most important person creating the modern democratic party, the mass democratic party uh, in the 1820s and 1830s, um, he, he he split with the party uh, in 1848 uh, after the Mexican War to be the candidate of the Free Soil Party, which uh, was a party which really began uh, a migration of a lot of white people in the North towards the Republicans, and which were not formed till six years later. But um, and Van Buren was you know the creator, one of the main creators of the Democratic Party, um, but um, he believed that. Uh the the Southern Democrats had and the slave-owning Democrats had much too much power in the party. Uh, and he was opposed to expanding uh slavery into the territories that were captured uh from Mexico uh during the Mexican War. So, um, and this and the Democratic Party split uh over the issue of expansion of slavery. Not right away, it took a while. Um, um but uh the two Democratic parties, the two Democratic tickets that run on in 1860, uh One uh, running Stephen Douglas, Senator from Illinois, uh, for president as a Democratic, as a Northern Democratic candidate. The other running a guy named Breckenridge, who was a sitting vice president, uh, kind of from Kentucky, for for the Southern Democratic Party. Uh, These were, uh, they they disagreed, you know, fundamentally about uh, the power of of slave owners. Uh, And uh, obviously, Douglas was not an abolitionist uh, at all, uh, but he did think that what uh, he called the slave power, uh, the, the political power of the South was had gotten too great. And, and when the Democratic Party split, uh, this ended their supremacy in American politics, uh, which really had been, they'd had really, with a few exceptions, uh, uh, since uh, the party was founded in the late 1820s.
1: So you, you mentioned Martin Van Buren as the true founder of the Democratic Party, but in your first chapter, you say that there's this useful myth and I remember in the in the '90s, one of the few other Democratic Party history books is one by Rutland, which says the Democrats from Jefferson to Clinton. Why is Martin Van Buren the founder of the Democratic Party and not Thomas Jefferson, as has been yep. so commonly
0: associated with? And there used to be these Jefferson-Jackson Day dinners that uh, the Democrats had to, yes. to raise money. But then you know the the, uh, the recognition that these guys were big slave owners. Uh, um, uh, Democrats don't have Jefferson Jackson day dinners anymore. I think there's some John, John Lewis dinners, for example. Uh, well, when I are, was
1: um, growing up, when I was growing up, it, it was still, we still thought that Andrew Jackson and Woodrow Wilson were these great Titans of the democratic party. Yeah. Right. And I was raised in very, well, they were democratic Titans of the democratic
0: party, whether or not they're Titans to be, to be praised, uh, is a different but matter. It but. was,
1: it was in, it was in a celebratory sense. So it's oh, amazing sure. yeah. how in 20 years it's changed. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, Yeah, one of the things and this is, you know, probably controversial among some early American historians. I haven't heard from any of them yet, but I I assume I will in academic reviews, perhaps. Um, uh, Certainly the party system is called the first party system did begin during really during uh, George Washington's second term uh, in the middle of the 1790s. uh, by and this is sort of famous story, you know, um, well-known story to anybody who's seen Hamilton, <laughs> uh, the musical, but also uh, you know, anybody who's just taken AP history or something like that. Um, of course, in, in political history at any time, you know, Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton, and Thomas Jefferson fell out in in uh, uh, in, in Washington's cabinet, and um, the. People who followed Hamilton called themselves the Federalists. Uh, those who followed Jefferson called themselves the Democratic Republicans. Uh, Democratic Republicans were, were repressed or were tempted to be repressed by John Adams during um, the late 1790s um, when it looks like the US might go to war with France. Um, but, and then Jefferson uh, wins the election of 1800, and, 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 and slowly but surely the Federalists pretty much die out as a party. But those parties were not mass parties, first of all. Uh, in 1800, I didn't know this before I started to write the book, only 10% of eligible voters voted uh, in that presidential election, uh, which amounts to 67,000 men only voting um, at the time when the population was about 4 million. And 67,000, I mean, I live in Washington, D.C., and, and my ward and the one adjoining ward have 67,000 people living in them, you know. Um, and uh, far more than that, that, that voted just in D.C. in the last presidential election, of course. So um, even given the, the, the small American population at the time, that was a very small group. Um, so it wasn't a mass party. Uh, these were parties of notables, is, is the way one historian has put it. Um, and the ordinary, even ordinary white men uh, couldn't vote. You had to have some property or uh, pay uh, a certain amount of, of property tax. Um, or both, depending on the state. Uh, There were different regulations, different states about uh, voting eligibility. Uh, But more than that, when Jefferson was elected in 1800, he gives his famous speech, you know, uh, his inauguration, uh, we're all Republicans, we're all Federalists. But what he actually meant by that, according to uh, uh, most of the histories I've read, is that now we don't have to have these divisions anymore. Uh, In effect, he was saying, let's all be Republicans now. Uh, and uh, and he, he made some statements, which I quote in the book, uh, during his presidency, arguing that parties are bad things. We don't want competitive parties. You know, uh, this was an older uh, belief at the time, uh, political theorists called Republicanism with a small R, which is that, you know, men of standing and education um, who believe in um, uh, a virtuous republic should get together and and get beyond their petty differences and really uh, Govern the country for the good of the large majority, uh, but the large majority does not have to be involved in a serious way in making those decisions. Um, and this is, of course, how the constitution was written and framed, and um, in many ways ratified. Uh, so, so uh, uh, I, I argue that 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 the 1820s was really the time when the when the when the Democratic Party, as a mass institution that we still have today, was born. Um, Because um, uh, the party differences that did exist in the first party system uh, were differences among elites, uh, elite figures for the most part, and also um, they... Um, uh, the, the man who triumphed from those elite differences, Thomas Jefferson and his supporters, tried to do away with party with parties afterwards, and didn't didn't think parties were a good thing at all. So, so uh, it's only 1820s to 30s that you get the rise of first the Democrats and then the Whigs opposing the Democrats in the 1830s. Parties that believe. Uh, Well, we'd rather, you know, the other party didn't exist, but we accept the fact that it does exist and that we're going to have to go into election with the whole apparatus of campaigning that we're used to today with, um, at the time, a a partisan press, now partisan cable channels uh, and literature of various kinds uh, uh, and uh, everything else, you know, we know of consultants and so forth. Um, And... Uh, beginning of actually pollsters uh, that people had in a very rudimentary way back then, um, usually holding, po- holding polls in barbershops and bars um, and uh, and having having machines or at least organizations, in, in especially in swing states, uh, which could turn out the vote. I and mean, that's when you have Tammany Hall beginning as a machine in the 1820s and the 30s in a, in a serious way. Um, and it lasts really until the 1960s, 1970s. Um, and Republican machines beginning in places like Philadelphia as well. So that's why I see Van Buren as the most important figure in the creation of the party, not Thomas Jefferson.
1: I remember reading that quote uh, from Jefferson in your book, and I'm always reminded of Christopher Hitchens' quote, a Jefferson admirer who said that bipartisanship is a euphemism for a one-party state. (laughs) And and up until the 1820s, the era of good feelings, it pretty much was a one-party state. So you've mentioned that in the aftermath of the creation of the Democratic Party, ja- uh, Andrew Jackson becomes this, you know, national figure. The Democratic Party is this incredibly successful party up until the Civil War, until there's the split over slavery. The the, the Confederacy uh, delegitimizes Democrats quite tremendously. How were Democrats able, especially with the use of the of, of advanced machine politics, to? Uh, not only survive the reconstruction period but in a sense flourish electorally in the gilded age
0: well they don't flourish you know i mean the gilded age is kind of like a period like now uh you might say in terms of division between you know uh you might say like now with economic equality uh, being very great um but also that there's really no majority party uh the party shared uh, control of the presidency. The Republicans wanted more. Uh, Democrats controlled the House more often in the Gilded Age. Republicans controlled the Senate more. Uh, there were lots of swing states. Indiana was a swing state, for example, uh, in a way it hasn't been for a long time. Um, so um, Democrats were able to rebuild themselves after the Civil War and Reconstruction. Um, first of all, by making the South solid, <laughs> uh, uh, even more than it had been before, um, uh, the Civil War. And uh, this was, of course, based on uh, both on two things. First, uh, suppressing the black vote, disenfranchising uh, most black voters, which was accomplished, you know, most states by the 1890s. Uh, but also, I began even before then, uh, during the end of Reconstruction, but also by appealing to, um, to white working men, uh, especially immigrants. Uh, and I have a chapter on bosses called Bosses North and South uh, about the Gilded Age. Uh, Focusing on um, a guy named Ben Tillman, who was the the boss of South Carolina and um, famous, uh, often called Pitchfork Ben Tillman because he uh, uh, he, he uh, made a vow uh, during the depression of the 1890s that he was going to go to Washington and stick a pitchfork in a fat Grover Cleveland, uh, and uh, and this was a sign actually that that yes he was a horrible white supremacist and racist, um, but. He also had a program to help uh, ordinary white farmers in South Carolina and, by extension, uh, across the South. With he believed in crop subsidies. Uh, he started a whole new agricultural college, uh, which is now called Clemson, uh, um, because the University of South Carolina was only um, educating the, uh, the sons of uh, big planters. Um, and he kind of co-opted the Farmers' Alliance, which was the precursor of the Populist Party in South Carolina. Um, so uh, in the north, Tammany Hall, which I focus on, and, and some other Democrat machines in smaller cities like Albany and uh, um, out in San Francisco as well, uh, were appealing to immigrants, especially Irish immigrants, who were a large uh, group in the population of all of these cities. Um, with um, some of the things that you know, people who've written anything about, written anything about bosses uh, is familiar with, um, uh, helping them find jobs, get out of jail, um, also. Sort of attending people's cultural events, weddings, funerals, uh, bar mitzvahs, uh, christenings, and so forth. Sort of being there to uh, uh, to be the the government, in, in effect, uh, for a lot of ordinary people. When a time when city government was not very strong in most of these places, was not really providing services. Um, so, both emotionally, psychologically, if you will, and to a certain degree, materially, uh, the big city machines. Um, uh, did this. And, and and some of the horrible white racists like Ben Tillman did it to some degree, too. Now, they didn't they didn't create a welfare state. They weren't able to. Um, at least the northerners weren't able to because they didn't control the state governments. Uh, and even if they had, it's unclear if they would have done that. But this is, I think, the beginning, um, especially in the north, of the kind of programs, the kind of concern for ordinary working people that would eventually flourish you know, in, in the New Deal. Uh, and not surprisingly, there are Tammany Figures like Senator Robert Wagner uh, from New York, uh, who become really important New Dealers, uh, in a way that, if you uh, think only of the um, the Boss Tweed image of the of Tammany Hall, uh, just corrupt, uh, stealing money from ordinary people, buying people's votes, uh, stuffing ballot boxes, nothing but corrupt. You can't understand why one of the more progressive. Um, senators in American history, and and certainly in the 1930s, uh, Robert Wagner could have kept praising Tammany Hall. Um, uh, No one forced him to do that, you know. Um, And um, Al Smith, too, who was in the 1920s, you know, a pretty progressive figure in the Democratic Party, too. Uh, First Catholic candidate, major party candidate for president. Also, he and Wagner were good friends and they both were um, seons of 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 Tammany Hall. So um, I think that's how long answer to your question that's how the democratic party began i think to come back and to and to um sort of get the uh, be able to wear the title uh, of being the party of of the working man now it meant uh in, in both these places almost entirely just the white working man though Tammany did appeal to a certain degree to to black people when they began moving to new york city during the great migration uh, during world war one because again you know what it took to win, you have to win votes. <laughs> and anybody anybody who could vote, you know, uh machines wanted their votes, obviously. That's how you that's how you get more votes than the other guy.
1: No, I, I appreciate your rather positive profile of machines as a as a son of Chicago. I've defended machine politics against conservative complaints for years. So to for that emphasis is appreciated. And I should clarify, I I, I suppose when I meant flourish, I didn't mean, yeah, a New Deal era. Dominant majorities, but seemingly, I don't think anyone after 1865 would have thought, well, the Democrats would have held the majority in, in the House for however many years afterwards.
0: And they, and they win it back in 1874, you know, and that helps, yeah. unfortunately, helps to end Reconstruction. Uh, oh, yeah. Because, because there's no, even though uh, Ulysses Grant uh, is still president until 1877, uh, the Democratic House is not going to be appropriating a lot more money for uh, helping troops uh, enforce. Black people's rights in the South after that. And something else happens, I should mention really quickly, I know we want to get on, we're still in the 19th century here, but um, is the fact that uh, Democrats uh, begin in the 1870s to stand for something that Brian becomes later famous for standing for. That is, you know, um, uh, inflating the money supply, basing money on nothing but the full faith and credit of the federal government, so-called greenbacks, or um, basing it on silver as well as gold, gold. Silver is a lot more plentiful uh, than gold. So, you know, helping people get out of debt um, and uh, be able to get loans at lower interest rates because more money, money is more plentiful to start small businesses. So uh, th- this this remains uh, a democratic uh, sort of talking point in many ways until 1930s when when FDR takes the country off the gold standard. So so um, and that's something that helps them win uh, northern votes in 1874 and win back the House.
1: So you've mentioned, Brian, what happens in the context of the 1890s that allows this rather inexperienced Nebraska congressman to become not only a nominee once, but three times? And then how does his movement influence the rather successful presidency of Woodrow Wilson? Sure. Well, he's,
0: um, a small P populist, uh, he is allied with the People's Party. Uh, the People's Party fuses with the Democrats in 1896, his first presidential campaign. and the P- and the People's Party, as some people probably out there know, is a sort of the closest thing you might say to a social democratic movement um, in the in the late 19th century and it's much larger than the than the uh, than the Socialist Party, which is formed in 1901. Um, politics aren't aren't exactly the same, but uh, and so Brian becomes identified with a Uh, Again, reversing the democratic tradition up to that point becomes becomes identified with a a politics which says if 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 people need help from the federal government, the federal government should try to get them help. Um, That is, um, uh, he he he, for a while he supports nationalization of the railroads, for example, to make sure that the government would be able to regulate the fares of the railroads and also you know make sure that workers are treated well because there are a lot of big railroad strikes in the late nineteenth century. and uh, as I said before, he supports labor unions. He gives a big Labor Day speech in 1896 to, in Chicago uh, to uh, a mass of workers, and um, and so the crisis of the 1890s is is as serious you know, an economic crisis in many ways as as, an, as the Great Depression of the 1930s. It doesn't last as long; lasts only about four years, but but it's 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 the worst depression America's ever faced, and you have uh, the growth of. A big uh, railway union led by Eugene Debs, uh, the future socialist leader. You have um, the the People's Party growing in the middle of the 1890s until they fuse with Brian. Uh, and Brian is, and his, and Brian Democrats who support him are aligned with these insurgencies in many ways. They're lying, aligning with the um, discontent in the country of small farmers and many wage earners. Uh, now, there's not enough of them to win the election in 1896, uh, but uh, during the Great Depression, when Brian is running as a candidate of the party that's been in power, at least in the presidency, during during the Depression, uh, and he split his party because Grover Cleveland, the sitting president, basically tells conservative Democrats, go ahead and vote for William McKinley, the Republican, or for a third party, sort of gold Democrat ticket, as it's known, which is just a no, sort of stalking, stalking horse for the Republicans. Um, but this, I think he really does change the party. Uh, <clears throat> um for good, uh, or at least forever, whether it's good or not. It's up to people to decide. But uh, because it's really at that point that Democrats do become uh, the party of what you might call big government, uh, which they had not been before at all. But of course, he does it using Jacksonian rhetoric, using Jeffersonian rhetoric, that we're still a party of the common person. We're against uh, elites controlling big government, but we think we want the people to control big government. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's an important rhetorical rhetorical change. You can see it in Democratic platforms. If you read Democratic platforms, which, of course, you can do online, uh, you see a really, you know, marked change in 1896. And that change continues, arguably, until the 1990s, when Bill Clinton's platforms, to some degree, fudge on some of those issues. Um, But even now, if you look at uh, the Democratic platform last year, which runs to many hundreds of pages, and hardly anybody ever reads them anymore. But, uh, you know, you can see a lot of echoes of, of Brian's campaign in 1896. So
1: how does Brian lead to the ascendancy of of Woodrow Wilson? It seems that Woodrow Wilson, by a fluke, by a split of the Republicans, becomes president. And he isn't even a very progressive person prior to 1912, but he fundamentally changes the structure of the American government in his eight years of presidency.
0: Yeah. Um, Well, Wilson, as you say, didn't like Brian. Uh, uh, 1906, he... uh, He said in a letter to a friend, you know, uh, how, in effect, uh, how are we going to get this guy out of the party? We don't want him to win the nomination a third time. Uh, Wilson was very much a sort of Grover Cleveland Democrat. Um, uh, But look, he's a he becomes a politician. He runs for governor of uh, New Jersey in in 1910 um, on a pretty progressive platform. You know, he sees where the party is and where it's going. And so he wants to win the uh, nomination. And so he he changes. I think he does change, actually. in his, his heart, as well as uh, in his rhetoric. Um, he does see problems with the power of big business. He does see that workers are getting a bum deal, you know, uh, not in unions. And so um, uh, I think he he does um, uh, uh, have a conversion of sorts. Uh, um, and and also he has support. You know, we forget that the, the both parties had both more progressive wings and more conservative wings at this time. Um, and the Southern Democrats, who were the largest single part of the Democratic Party uh, when Wilson was president, uh, do support a lot of the bills that we now think of as, you know, progressive bills. Uh, uh, the beginning of the Federal Reserve System. Uh, they support uh, creation of income tax. Uh, they support popular election of senators. Uh, they support an eight-hour day for railroad workers. All these bills, um, not the amendments, but all the bills I mentioned, are um, are sponsored by by um, Southern representatives. They even have the names of the Southern representatives. Adam, the Adamson bill to create an eight-hour day for railroad workers, for example. Adamson was a, a congressman from Georgia, um, you know, sort of a white-only voter state, right? Um, so, uh, uh, again, this is the anti-monopoly side of, uh, of, of more capitalism for the most part. Um, um, and then, of course, in World War One, you know, uh, the, the federal state becomes larger, uh, at least temporarily. And... Uh, um, and the war is, of course, uh, a war that, uh, as, as uh, Wilson famously says in his speech called for Declaration of War, uh, we must have a war to have the world made safe for democracy. And, um, and that, of course, begins uh, the association uh, of, of Democrats, rightly or wrongly, with, with sort of idealistic, supposedly, uh, uh, crusades uh, overseas, you know, uh, sometimes necessary ones like World War II. Uh, sometimes ones I would not argue were necessary, like Vietnam and, uh, and World War One. But nevertheless, um, in some ways, that's the, what Wilson did is also, you might say, you know, saying that government should be on the side of ordinary people around the world who want democracy. Whether or not that was uh, what really uh, true—that's what, what those people really wanted—or not, it's a different question. Or whether the U.S. could your military might could help them get it, different question. But nevertheless, you know, rhetorically, uh, that I think becomes a major. Part of 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 party uh, doctrine from Wilson onward.
1: So Wilson commits just a litany of political errors in his last term: uh, curbing civil liberties, the League of Nations b- bungle, uh, the Panic of nineteen nineteen, and the Democrats in the nineteen twenties are just completely decimated. I remember there's a book published on 1924 called The High Tide of Conservatism, because it says that both candidates basically believe the same thing. They, they've strayed from moral capitalism, which you argue is electorally disastrous, but new participants arrive on the scene in the 1920s. Uh, they've been given a new right. And who are some of these new political actors who who, even when the Democratic Party is in dire straits, they are fundamental to to organizing and and having a lasting impact?
0: Yeah, one of the things I, I actually discovered—I uh, you know, knew some of the things in this book before I wrote it, of course, because I teach and write about political history I have for years. But one thing I learned about—I didn't know much about before—is how important women were to the party in the 1920s, and uh, arguably as important, more important than they've ever been before. And they wouldn't be so important again till till uh, the the new feminist movement of the 60s and 70s. Uh, 60s, 19, 60s and 70s. Women like Eleanor Roosevelt, who um, was had a, her own. Uh, connections with with feminist organizers uh, that were separate from those of her husband. Uh, Frances Perkins, who uh, becomes uh, the first uh, woman cabinet member, secretary of labor, but she's very active in in labor issues in the 1920s. Uh, Belle Moskowitz, who's a very close uh, aide to the closest aide to governor and then president's candidate, Al Smith. Um, uh, many others I mentioned, uh, some women politicians, too. Um, <coughs> um, they really have a program, uh, which you might call sort of a a proto New Deal program of um, helping labor unions organize, uh, uh, raising, having a minimum wage, um, having uh, various child welfare bills. Uh, They want, um, uh, they would have liked, I think, to have universal daycare, but that's not something that was going to go anywhere at the time. Uh, In other words, they had a sort of welfare state, you might say, metropolis kind of welfare state uh, uh, vision, Um, and they supported politicians at a time like Al Smith, uh, who were uh, in favor of some of those uh, issues as well. They actually um, were able to raise money from wealthy white uh, feminists um, who gave them a nice headquarters building in Washington, D.C., where when the Democratic Party was uh, reeling after its defeat in 1924... Uh, Democratic DNC didn't even have enough money to have its own headquarters, its own office. So the headquarters of DNC, in effect, was in the Women's National Democratic Club near DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C. So without uh, the women's part of the party, the party would have had nowhere to to lay its head, so to speak, for a while uh, in the mid-1920s. That was key. And also something very important, too, the 1928 campaign, which doesn't get as much attention as other campaigns. Al Smith Uh, the first major party Catholic uh, candidate for president, nominee for president, does lose very badly to Hubert Hoover uh, during a prosperous time in the 1920s. Republicans are very much the majority party at that time. But he does enthuse um, a lot of um, people from immigrant backgrounds, especially Catholic, Jewish, uh, Eastern Orthodox, uh, to vote for the first time. Um, They're mad about prohibition. Uh, they're mad about immigration restriction laws that Republican Congresses have passed in the early 20s. Uh, and and these people begin uh, to vote, to see themselves as Democrats. They uh, increase the vote for uh, Democrats in the major cities over what they'd been before in the 20s. And the 1928 election, in many ways, is the precursor to the 1932 election, uh, where FDR wins huge majorities from these same groups. Uh, and of course, wins other voters as well, who are mad at Republicans for supposedly causing the Great Depression. So the 20s is an important seedbed, I think, of, of the New Deal coalition of the 1930s. Uh, you know, every all history has a prehistory, right? Um, and, uh, and so in some ways, the 20s is important. If you want to understand what happens in the 30s, you have to understand the preparation for it in the 20s.
1: One of my favorite stories about Al Smith is when an Episcopal minister wrote why a Catholic couldn't become legitimately a president because they'd be allied to the Pope. He read the letter and then said, what is an encyclical? This is Al Smith. Okay.
0: Which is <laughs> did, uh, probably uh, either apocryphal or he was lying, because he knew what an encyclical <laughs> Something was. like this,
1: yes. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah. So f- 1933, Franklin Roosevelt annihilates Herbert Hoover in the height of the Great Depression. And throughout this chapter uh, that you call an American Labor Party question, unions and the growth of unions, especially by new organizations like the CIO, are essential to the strength of the Democratic Party. But you also mentioned that the Democratic Party provides much needed legal strength to unions themselves. How does this symbiosis expand Democrat majorities to, you know, unforeseen heights in the 30s and
0: 40s? Sure. I'll try to be a little quicker here because we don't have too much time left. Sure. But uh, and we're still 90 years away. But uh first of all, unions um organize on their own obviously uh, uh, there's big strikes in 1934 uh, big strikes in 1936 and 1937 some of them sit-down strikes people occupying uh, their their plants like uh, General Motors workers in Flint Michigan famously uh, so uh, unions are are surging especially industrial unions uh, not just industrial unions but but uh, uh, you have you know big unions being formed in in, in uh, <clears throat> auto industry steel industry electrical products industry that had never, uh, had unions of any size before. Um, and these unions see the Democratic Party as a natural ally, uh, partly because uh, Roosevelt wanted to increase purchasing power uh, during the Great Depression. And one of the ways to do that, of course, is workers get higher wages. And one of the ways to make sure they have higher wages is if they have strong unions. Um, Robert Wagner, I mentioned before, this guy uh, who got a start in politics in Tammany Hall, he writes, um, or has one of his aides right, the uh, National Labor Relations Act, 1935, uh, which really establishes uh, the machinery for, which you still have today, for the federal government to uh, have, hold union elections um, if 50% plus one of workers in a given bargaining unit, as it's called, want those elections. Um, and before that, uh, it was all power against power. You know, there was no uh, legal machinery, uh, for the federal government to, to regulate whether people could, um, or uh, adjudicate whether people could be in unions or not. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, and then, um, also, um, uh, Roosevelt, uh, does bring the economy back to a degree, uh, at least until the late 1930s. And, and of course this also helps get more people jobs. He also creates jobs, of course, uh, well, the, the Congress does, uh, with the Works Progress Administration, Public Works Administration, Tennessee Valley Authority, various these alphabet agencies. Um, and, and so um, a lot of people in the, in the leadership of the labor unions, some of whom have been socialists before, uh, like Walter Ruther, guy in the auto workers, and Sidney Hillman in the clothing workers, um, they say, well, third parties are not gonna do it. We need to affiliate ourselves with a party that clearly has shown an interest in helping us. You know. Um, Uh, To the degree it can. So they become so this is when labor becomes not just sometime alive with the Democratic Party, but solidly alive with the Democratic Party, which still is today in its small, much more weakened state. Uh, And at the same time, uh, they can do a lot for the Democrats because uh, states like Ohio and Pennsylvania and Michigan, upper Midwest states had been core Republican states for a long, long time, really since the Civil War, with few exceptions. Uh, Labor helps to make them Republican, uh, Democratic states. Uh, And in effect, in these states, the Democratic Party, especially in big industrial areas like Detroit and Akron, other places like that, is in effect the Labor Party. Uh, Labor is the core of the party. Um, but at the same time, you still have Southern Democrats who and you still have a solid South. Um, so the Democrats can't, Northern Democrats can't carry out all the progressive social democratic programs they might have liked to carry out and what Wagner would have liked to carry out, like national health insurance, for example. Um, there's carve-outs in some of these big bills, like the Wagner Act, National Liberations Act, does not cover agricultural workers or domestic workers. Uh, two-thirds of all the workers in the South are either domestic workers or agricultural workers. And most of the Mexican-American workers in the mostly democratic Southwest are as well. So uh, this is, shows the, still con- cons- the considerable power of Southern Democrats in the party.
1: Yeah, and I'll... Uh... We'll, I'll do ask two more questions. We'll finish up in about 10 minutes. So uh, my penultimate question is, we have huge unions. The Democratic Party in the 40s going into the 50s is incredibly strong. You mentioned the, the power of the Solid South in blocking legislation. How does the Solid South effectively end as a Democratic stronghold? And how does the union coalition fragment in the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s? Sure.
0: <clears throat> um, well... The, the, the simple answer, of course, is civil rights. Um, and that really begins late 1930s, actually, with the industrial unions of the CIO, which are interracial unions, which try to organize in the South. And the Southern Democrats say, no, you can go, you can organize up in Michigan, you know, that's OK, but don't come down to Arkansas, you know. And and so they're met with sometimes violence. Uh, uh, of course, their um, union unions are called communists. Uh, uh, there's some anti-Semitism thrown at them as well. Um, and so the union movement uh, is very powerful in the West Coast and the Northeast and the Midwest, but never really gets gets very powerful in the South and isn't today either. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, most most Southern white voters are still voting for Democrats uh, and those states are still going Democratic uh, until 1964. With some exceptions, Eisenhower wins some of those states, but until 64, uh, when, of course, Democratic Party um, um uh, under Lyndon Johnson, uh, gets the Civil Rights Act passed with with a more higher percentage of Republican senators uh, voting for it than Democratic senators, because so many Democratic senators are still from the South. Um, and in the election of '64, um, uh, most of the states vote for Barry Goldwater, uh, the Republican candidate who would oppose the Civil Rights Act. Uh, um, and you know, there's you know, Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton win Southern states. Certainly, they are Southerners, they're Southern Baptists. Uh, they're moderate Democrats, uh, even though they're pro civil rights, and of course, black voters are voting by then. So they're not winning white southern voters, but they are winning black southern voters. Um, and that's how Barack Obama won North Carolina. That's how Joe Biden won Georgia, of course. Um, but um, uh, the white southern vote, of course, has, has been overwhelmingly Republican, really, since in presidential elections, since since '64, with a few, with a few exceptions, and with labor, you know. It take too long to go and all the reasons labor has declined, I think. Um um two 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 primary reasons, I think. One, uh, labor's strength was always in manufacturing. Um, and manufacturing uh, both got more mechanized and also went overseas, first to uh European countries and then and, and Japan and now, you know, uh, more and more to China, Vietnam, you know, low wage uh India. Um you know, pick up any piece of clothing, you know, look, look where it's made, unless it's really not expensive clothing. It's probably made, you know, in a low wage area uh, that sometimes uh, the U.S., you know, in the 60s and 70s uh, fought very hard to uh, to stop from from uh, communists controlling it. Well, now those communist governments are very happy to have American corporations uh, make uh, like Gap make uh, T-shirts and underpants. Um, anyway, i sorry for digressing. Um Uh, But also because unions really stopped uh, putting emphasis on organizing for a long time, uh, to the 1990s, and also um, uh, employers began to get smart. They began to say, well, we don't have to take these unions. We can try to fight them. And they began to hire uh, usually uh, Republican-affiliated lawyers, management teams uh, who were very good at working around the labor law who understood that even if you break the labor law the fine you get is be pretty, pretty small and it's going to take months even years uh, for that judgment to go against you and that time the, the union movement will have fizzled out so um, uh, you know big companies like General Motors, like Chrysler, uh, like Ford, you know and, and and most of the big steel companies in the north at least still have unionized labor forces but the strength of unions is in government employment now of course teachers, uh, government workers generally, Uh, And those workers are more vulnerable politically because they're seen as, you know, connected. We want big, we want bigger government because it'll increase our salaries and so forth. And of course, we all, we know all the battles about what's taught in in public schools uh, these days. Um, And of course, teachers are in the middle of that, the union, union teachers for the most part. So, so even the Democratic Party is still the party that most unionists support. Uh, Even white union members vote Democratic um, in higher percentages than white uh, working people generally. Um, That's important to note. But only 6% of American workers are in private sector unions. That's not a very important voting block the way it used to be.
1: So beginning in the 70s, we see two essential constituencies to Democratic electoral success be dismantled, unions and the Solid South. And now new constituencies arise that Democrats try to, uh, uh, try to take, uh, try to co-opt, uh, the burgeoning feminist movement, Blacks. The burgeoning gay movement. But yet throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s, and even up until today, there's this tension of what economic system should the Democrats embrace? Should it be that old school moral capitalism of great society and New Deal? Or should it be, like the Democratic Leadership Council, more business friendly, more entrepreneurial friendly? How do how does that economic tension in the Democratic Party still manifest itself in recent elections?
0: Well, sure. Well, just look at the just look at the uh, candidates who ran uh, for the Democratic nomination. You have Michael Bloomberg on one hand, uh, who you know is on the so-called social issues—abortion, gun control, you know, uh, racial justice. You know, he's he was all there with uh, with more progressive Democrats. But economic issues, antitrust, uh, um, supporting unions, um, redistribution of wealth more generally. He was, of course, not on the side of redistributing uh, part of his billions. Uh, to uh, people, and and of course on the right, on the left you had Bernie Sanders, famously a uh, you know self proclaimed socialist, Elizabeth Warren, who between them I think sort of <laughs> you could say uh, include you know most important themes of moral capitalism I talk about anti monopoly more for for Warren uh, and of course pro worker uh, changes for uh, for Sanders. Um, and look at Democrats to win have always had to be a broad coalition. I mean the Republicans. Um, uh, were are still pretty broad themselves, even even if uh, we think they're mostly the party of white evangelical Christians. They are primarily, but as you know, they're picking up more votes from Latino working class people. Um, they uh, are picking up, you know, they they're the, they're, the, they're the the party of of most white working class people today. So, uh, whether evangelical Christians or not, so um, you know, I think uh, important to realize that you have to juggle these constituencies and. And Democrats, of course, have to raise money from from a lot of rich people as well. Now, some of the people they raise a lot of money from, like George Soros, are actually on on the side of some of the economic uh, redistribution, uh, unlike, say, Bloomberg. But but it's uh, you know it's it's complicated. And also, change uh, in American politics, I think, doesn't happen from the top primarily. It happens from the middle and the bottom. It happens from social movements, from popular discontent, forming uh, compelling, making a compelling case. Uh, to politicians. If you don't address our discontents, you're going to lose. Brian did that in 1896. He still lost, but he did better than he probably would have if he'd run as a Grover Cleveland Democrat. Um, and uh, same is true today. So Joe Biden sort of, in his campaign in 2020, had to balance these uh, things as a sort of in the center of this differences. And he won, in part because uh, he was able to do that, in part because he wasn't Donald Trump. But he um, Uh, And I think Democrats still have to do that. And, of course, with such narrow majorities, you know, unfortunately, you know, we have uh, this sort of uh, virtual president named uh, Joe Manchin. Um, And, uh, you know, unless you make Joe Manchin happy, you're not going to get any parts of the Build Back Better plan uh, through the Senate. Right. So uh, um, with narrow majorities, you don't usually pass transformative legislation. Uh, You know, I wrote about this in a New York Times piece right before my book came out late February. But. You know, it's naive to think that Democrats are going to be able to recreate the kind of kind of big changes that Wilson helped to bring about, uh, that FDR helped to bring about, Lyndon Johnson helped to bring about, uh, because in those periods, Democrats had big majorities, you know, Uh, they couldn't pass anything they wanted to. They had splits in the party, as I mentioned before, but but. the, the, all all the battles were, you know, can you get, you know, enough Democrats, you know, to agree to this? Uh, and now you have to get every single Democrat in the Senate to agree to it, and pretty much every one in the House, too. Uh, and that's a whole lot harder.
1: Yeah, it's, it's amazing that in 08, the Democrats had all of these House members, but that was still less than an average 1980s Democratic House during the Reagan high tide conservatism. Well, I, I Absolutely love the end of your book talking about the casino hotel union in Vegas as a potential future for democratic bottom up grassroots union activism. Michael, thank you so much for talking about this exceptional book that I think Democrats and Republicans alike, uh, in the in you know in the words of Obama, all Americans will appreciate this book. But before we go, just talk a little bit about your future academic plans. What is in store for? you writing or with research?
0: Well, actually, you know, I'm, I began as a labor historian, uh, and I stress, you know, working class issues a lot in this book, of course. Um, my first book was about the building trades in San Francisco in the progressive era. They're a very, very strong part of the American Federation of Labor. And I'm returning to that period. I'm going to write a biography of Samuel Gompers, uh, who was the um, president of the American Federation of Labor for um, almost 40 years. Uh um, until his death in 1925, and uh, but write about him in the context of um, the rise of American unionism in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, um, talking about sort of alternate paths to building labor movement that were espoused by people like Eugene Debs, by uh, people like uh, uh, leaders in industrial workers of the world, uh, uh, by women garment workers in New York City, for example. So I'm really interested in, in you know how class was understood and how class. Uh, issues were fought about uh by working people uh in this period. Um with Gompers in the center of it, because he was, uh even though most people don't even know his name today or don't know much about him at all, he was, I think, the most important labor leader in American history. And um and I think I want to sort of recreate uh and, and reinterpret that that period um for uh for readers. It's a period I've always cared a lot about, wrote a biography of William James Bryan, my first book on labor and the progressive era and so forth. I wrote a book about uh, opposition to World War One, for example, called War Against War. So I love the period, like Gilded Age, Progressive Era period. I sort of I always like returning to it. And this is a way of doing that with labor in the center.
1: Well, very exciting. I look forward to reading that when it finally gets published. Michael, thank you again so much for the interview. This has been uh, New Books in American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jackson Reinhart. Thank you so much for listening. Have a good day. Goodbye.